Chris Webster here, co-founder of the APN. I just wanted to thank you for supporting archaeological education and outreach. Please share this post across your socials so more can learn about our shared past. On to the episode. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. The Dirt Podcast is brought to you with support from the Archaeology Division of the American Anthropological Association. Hi, everyone. This week's episode is an interview with special guest Dr. Damien Huffer. Damien is a bioarchaeologist and also a bit of a superhero. He works to understand and combat the Southeast Asian and global antiquities trade and the online trade in human remains. Amber and I sat down with him to talk about his work. To learn more about Damien and what he does, you can visit thedirtpod.com for our show notes and links to organizations that fight the online trafficking of human remains. We hope you enjoy this episode. We learned a lot. We hope you do too. On with the show. Damien, thank you so much again for talking with us today. Um, we have a number of questions for you, and uh, we'll see where that takes us. So, Amber, why don't you start us off? Um, so, you are currently a bioarchaeologist and scholar of the antiquities trade, particularly where that intersects with human remains. Can you give us a sense of the career trajectory that led to where you are now? Did you always want to be a, a bioarchaeologist? Did you always know what a bioarchaeologist did? Yeah, he was born oh knowing that. <laughs> if only that would have clarified so many, so many confusions. <laughs> yeah. If we were only all born knowing exactly what the meaning of our future career was, that would help so many things. Yeah. No, but look, it, it's thank you again for having me, of course, and uh, it's great to chat. Um, so yeah, so to start off, I mean, that's it's been a circuitous trajectory for sure. Um, if believe it or not, I originally wanted to be a chef, oh. and then a musicologist. <laughs> Really, ah. and then a paleontologist, like many children, you know, especially going to archaeology, first have a thing for dinosaurs, and then I'm proud of that. You know, I grew up in this relatively small town in Colorado, but have and still have family in Tucson. And I was one of those, for me, for archaeology, I was always one of those weird, you know, Caucasian American mutt kids, but who also always had this interest in other cultures, languages, and foods. And I got exposed to archaeology and anthropology in high school, but it wasn't really until undergraduate. I did that at the University of Arizona. Uh, and the U of A and the Arizona State Museum allowed freshmen to volunteer on an ongoing excavation at the time near Tucson of this Hohokam Native American village to about 1250 AD. Mm -hmm. And that, just on that first volunteer day even, uh, not even for credit, not even because I was enrolled yet, but I kind of realized oh yeah, this could be a perfect fit. Like a field where at least occasionally I could be outdoors in this field-based science, but combined with a means to learn about past and present cultures. And that kind of connected the dots for me, if you will. But, but the osteology came later, to be honest. Um, you know, I had some coursework and excavation experience uh, up to graduate school regarding the dead, but it was really not until graduate school when I moved to Australia. I did my master's at Australian National University in 2005. Uh, that's in Canberra. 
And that's when I first got to really participate in a cemetery excavation, in this case in Vietnam. And just being there, being <clears throat> among the dead, having to have, you know, learn the skills and the patience to expose them, to deal, handle them properly, to, and then all the science behind understanding how we figure out lives lived in the past through skeletal, dental, and contextual data. That's really kind of drove home. Yes, at some, in some way or another, you know, learning from the dead needs to be part of my life. But also at the same time, the, like that was one strand, if you will. But the other strand was then with the antiquity side, the looting side, I met uh, folks, uh, Professor at ANU and his colleagues in Cambodia who ran an NGO called Heritage Watch, uh, which still is active. Uh, they gave talks at conferences and to our departments and really showed the horror of, in this case, looted out Iron Age cemeteries, prehistoric and historic sites in Cambodia that had become minefields, looked very much similar to what the public is familiar with in looted sites in the Middle East, for example. Right. And I originally tried to work with them to develop an educational learning game, uh, teamed up with some professors, some colleagues Ooh. from my undergraduate days who study educational gaming. We thought we could put together a game about, you know, anti-looting outreach, you know, a message to tourists about why you shouldn't buy antiquities. It didn't go exactly how we wanted to, but that was the, the, the other strand, the other kind of seed that said, well, I have this connection and I'm learning and I'm seeing examples on the street in Vietnam and in their presentations of what looting is doing to the past in many parts of the world. And then the kicker was the Australian Department of Cultural Property, uh, agents of that division in Canberra, contacted myself and Dr. O'Reilly, and they wanted our help in a, a human remains smuggling case. There was a dealer in Melbourne who had been caught selling bones with soil on them and corroded bronze jewelry still attached. Yeah, he was selling online out of his shop, <laughs> on his websites, and he got busted trying to smuggle in two big cases of this. Cases. So we were called, yes. Cases of, no, no. come human on, remains. man. Human remains, everything from finger bones to whole online radii, the whole forearm, to in two cases of tibia and fibula, like two whole lower legs Just, with the dirt, with the soil still attached. <laughs> Yeah, and very subtle. Cool. Yeah, very, very cool. subtle. But there it is. On you know, I still have a screenshot of the ads. It was up for a few hundred Australian bucks. It can be shipped internationally. It was you can buy it online. You know, the guy still has a gallery, even though he forfeited this case immediately because of the nature of what was involved. But well, and he was just like, "Oh, you got me." Yeah, in this case. Oops, might be. Oops, he got I'll do that again. Other stuff, but and it was the first time that Australian law was really tested. Did he have to serve time for that, or he was just fined, or no? no. He'd been busted for smuggling mummies too before in the nineties. Like he had a long reputation for his stuff. Surely, at some point, you should lose privileges. <laughs> You're not allowed to ship things anymore, sure. sir. No, but this was. The strange case was that it actually at least showed that on really extreme examples, the dealers couldn't fight it. 
But at the same time, he got away with other stuff, so it pointed out, well, uh, there's a lot of holes in Australian law about smuggling and about antiquities trafficking. You, got, you need to deal yeah. with this. Uh, yeah. It hasn't really been dealt with yet, but... Um, right, so, but, look, that was, like, the formative years, but it also involves, you know, in graduate school and then beyond as an RCO archaeologist in training, really I've come to realize that I can kind of help this, fill this gap in what was known about the global antiquities trade. With the cases like what I just mentioned, I think I was already getting the idea that how the human remains trade works might operate differently than, for example, artifact smuggling out of the Near East under ISIS. Um, yeah. And I had a blog for a while, also in graduate school. Um, that was with Heritage Watch and with this blog was how I got into and connected to that small group of uh, scholars who study antiquities trafficking as a, as a whole. Um, and they said, you know, you're there in Australia, maybe you can blog about Southern Hemisphere cases or like find the web pages of galleries in Australia or points on the map not so well surveyed in terms of being a market country for antiquities. Mm -hmm. And you can write about what you're observing, what they're selling, questions about it, for example. And that started to include human remains cases. So I went from there to, I guess, meeting two pivotal final people, really, that got me into where I am now. I met a law professor and a criminologist at the University of Sydney in 2014, a guy named Professor Duncan Chapel. Uh, and he and I, with him, as I was a visiting research scholar in the criminology department there, uh, just kind of off and on as a part-time job, uh, right after my PhD. This was the first time I had to work with someone who was a legal expert and an Australian legal expert in that case to just begin the very slow manual way by Google searches to start to look for how many actual brick and mortar stores and online vendors uh, might be out there globally for human remains. So we put together a paper about this. And before that, really, there had been really no published literature at all about uh, the online traffic of this material, except for in 2003, two forensic anthropologists called out eBay in the early <laughs> markets about why were they selling certain things from their expertise. You can see examples of skulls with bullet holes, for example, and oh, yikes, really. Um, but beyond that, and there was a 10 year gap, we said, well, that's just eBay. We wanted to look at what was what else was out there. And that's from there, I got to the Smithsonian, and the Smithsonian work was on paper all about learning isotope methods. And this was working on skeletal collections from excavations and from salvaging from Jordan and Bahrain that the Smithsonian has held for years to decades on permanent loan. But uh, in this case, it was valuable because I also got to meet law enforcement because law enforcement would come by and they want to. The Smithsonian had a training program with Homeland Security to train yeah. agents in how to understand like laboratory equipment, how to understand collections-based research, and how could that be valuable to new cultural property agents who might have cases. So I was honored to get to help with that, but I was still only 
kind of tangentially looking at human remains in a manual sense. I helped with another case that's ongoing, but the final big thing that really launched what what you have found me as and where I am now really is meeting uh, my colleague, Dr. Sean Graham, who's he's a digital humanities expert at Carleton University in Canada. He's mm-hmm. electric archaeo on Twitter, so you might know him or you might have seen him. Uh, we had followed each other on Twitter a lot, and about 2015 in the SAAs, we finally got to meet in person. <laughs> yeah, in the coffee line at the Starbucks, which is the story <laughs> we always tell. Oh, yeah, that's, that's standard. And yeah. it was at that time where, well, you just saw him, Nathan, my partner, and I had just started. We had done, Duncan and Chapel and I had done the paper about Google searching for galleries and just starting to sketch the framework of what might be there. And then a year later, with Nathan's suggestion, in fact, to be honest, uh, hey, what about social media? Like, what about what about Instagram? What about these things? And before that, we had zero conception to even think to look there. But that really launched, really allowed us to fall down into the rabbit hole of <laughs> seeing how much was there. And yeah. I gave this talk to the SAAs in a trafficking panel led, if you've seen her on Twitter as well, by Donna Yates. Um, yeah. Um, and that was all the very, very early screenshots just taken by manual screenshot methods of the first few examples we were seeing. Sean comes up to me and says, ah, you guys can do this much faster and I have a lot of techniques that you can learn. And that's that kind of that brings everything together. That was the final piece of the puzzle, if you will, to uh, launch what everything my career has been as it is uh, from then. All the human remains trafficking, exploration and research, etc. ACTO work that all stems from that background, and then that final meeting of someone with the digital chops to train me in that. Right. And we can really explode from there. So, yeah, yeah, very cool. So, I love your the title of your your current research project, at least as listed on your on your interwebs bio. It's you can buy that <laughs> understanding supply, demand, and authenticity in the human remains trade using data mining and archaeological science. But like, you really can buy that, which baffles me. So. <laughs> Can you tell us some more about kind of the scope of, I mean, you mentioned eBay, mm-hmm. right? You mentioned, but really. Well, and you mentioned um, an individual's gallery website, right? Did I understand yeah, that correctly? Yeah. That no, he's just like his website, website like, yeah. like Joe Smith gallery, just like totally chill. Galleries in many galleries that have brick and mortar stores and web presences. Uh, yeah. You know. Yeah, so so what is the scope of the human remains trade? Okay, um, that's a big question. So <laughs> Yeah, so it seems. The title, that's okay. I mean, everyone asks me that. I go with that, you can buy that, not just because it's like, it is the thing I get asked the most by anyone, whoever has, here's what I've done. But, and it's fair enough, because it's baffling. It still baffles me, you know, even as a researcher of it, it still surprises me that people actively want to collect this material. Um, so yeah, the title I gave you was 
that of my most recent two-year project at Stockholm University, but it's generally still relevant. Um, a tiny bit of shameless self-promotion before oh, I enter. Heck yeah. If you want to still, if your listeners still want to um, follow along with the most current manifestations of where all this is, um, can I direct them to, it's all one word, bonetrade.github.io, and that should bring up our website, The Bone Trade Project, that Dr. Graham and I have made. And on that, you can see links to open access papers, talks we've given. Oh, perfect, perfect. Stuff that's both uh, contemporaneous with when I was at the Stockholm University from 2017 to 2019, roughly. But then more recent stuff as we go further into 2020 and beyond, that's where updates will happen, FYI. Yeah. We'll include that in our show notes so um, our listeners can either go to our website um, and it'll be listed there, but also a lot of podcatchers have that option to just like click straight through and it opens like in your mobile device browser. Yeah. Yeah. It'll all all be automatically linked up there. So that's, yeah, that's awesome. Need to gain essential business skills to level up in your career? Then UCR University Extension's Professional Certificate in Heritage Business Management is the program for you. Join the first University of California online business program designed by and for cultural heritage professionals. Enroll early and save. Visit extension.ucr.edu slash APN today. Right. So to get back to your question, yes, like, yeah, yes, you can buy that. And yes, it is. Horrifying as it all seems. I mean, yeah, undoubtedly, right, unpublished casework reports from law enforcement exist. We don't deny that. And as civilians, we don't expect them to always share that with us because they have their own investigatory methods. But yeah, of course. From the researcher, civilian researcher point of view, really, it's only the last few years that, that e commerce and social media has even begun to be conceived of as places where the buying and selling of the dead can occur. Um, so, you know, what you need to understand is that, like in many types of the antiquities trade, items will surface, what we call surfacing, and disappear all the time. Surfacing being, it's this skull or this artifact has never been known or seen before or heard of until the moment it pops up in a sales catalog, on a website, on a social media profile. And monitoring every channel is a real challenge, of course. So let's not deny that a lot of this can happen offline, too. Um, And we see cases where, again, like all other types of trafficking, like you'd expect the really high-end dealers to be, you know, well-connected enough to their potential clientele that they can sometimes just bypass the use of the web anyway, and they'll know that people will come to them. But the bulk of the trade still would need to have this platform to get out there and advertise that they exist and they're seeking, if you will. Um, Yeah, and you know, like back in our 2014 paper and then more currently as we look on social media, we see major markets that exist in a lot of Western countries, US, UK, Belgium, the Netherlands, France, Australia, Canada, dealers in almost every well, former colonial, currently Western power that you can think of will have a part of this collecting community. Right. Um, and yeah, so it surprised us that, especially when you start to look at social media, we see that this trade is a lot more widespread in terms of 
the number of items, items, when I say items, I mean the dead, parts of the dead moving from country A to country B, much bigger than we thought, even if it is more of a niche market than the usual types of stuff smuggled in antiquities networks. Um, and yeah, I mean, we don't fully understand the, the entire extent of how much the internet and social media is or can be used and abused in this. Um, but we know that, as you might be, as, uh, as you might suspect, we we see plenty of evidence for very complicit awareness and non-compliance of certain platforms in this activity. Um, the laws behind that and how and why that happens is still very much being investigated and something that needs to be challenged. But right in general, though, think of it as it's the story that often sells the skeleton. Whether or not there's truth behind what the dealers are saying is another matter. And of course, you'd have to have law enforcement or another forensic expert be able to seize the remains in question to then allow civilians to bring science to bear and you know collect the data needed uh, to check or put the lie to whatever story has been attached to those remains. Uh, often they're very much out in left field, but you know, the problem is that it's the internet is, like others have said, it's unleashed the shackles of the sales room. It's, you know, anything, <laughs> anytime, anywhere, if you will. So right. it's, we, um, um, we talked briefly on a, on a different episode about the, uh, the case of the Persian princess mummy uh, and that that is really such a good example of trying to sell remains with with a gussied up story yes yeah. and it's, claiming but, claiming that she's a, a princess and, and it's also yeah. another um it's a very um evocative powerful example mm -hmm. of the relationship between the trade of remains and human trafficking mm -hmm. so just sort of that the the right because this one may have been a straight up murder i mean we don't know and but yeah so that that's something that um no i'm i'm Thank you so much for bringing up that point. Oh, no, that's great. Like the that, narrative yeah. that that pushes, in, to some degree, pushes. Like yeah, and like many other artifacts, you know, this this was once on the wall of the temple of whatever. Of like people can say yeah. whatever they want. Like social media platforms are not in the business of and don't have the loop. They're not tasked with, and arguably, nor should they be arbiters of all free speech. Obviously. But then the flip side of that is, of course, what you do with hate speech, what you do with, in our case, you can say whatever you want about what you're yeah. telling. You can false advertise as much you want. It doesn't have to actually. Yeah, you're not, yeah, you're you're not, not liable for truthful no. reporting. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. These, these platforms are tasked with storytelling. Exactly. exactly. And, that, and storytelling um, is a neutral term. Indeed. You can tell uh, fictional stories. You can tell violent stories. You can tell. Uh, macabre stories, yeah, yeah. yeah. In um, fact, you yes. raise a good point, actually. If I may, yeah, like, please. as we've thought about the ethics of, like, how to talk about what we're doing about our research, because <clears throat> when you research with, you know, public or sometimes even uh, semi-private group trafficking of material by people, you know authentically or allegedly engaging in criminal or very suspicious activity, which antiquities trafficking would fall in that category. Like 
to do that research as a civilian, it has to move into and get reviewed by ethical review boards as expected. But we're realizing that even how we talk about well, the data we get, if we call it social media posts, as opposed to what, we, what we're starting to talk about it now, but most recently is advertisements on social media. Yeah. We draw that distinction between this is an example of, and therefore data from someone, you know, using a real or fake name with these human remains, turning it into an advertisement for something to buy and sell via a social media platform to separate it from what most people think of as a social media post is everything from cute kittens to food porn, like take right. a pick. It's yeah. We're Instead of like, I went to a museum. Very, very yeah. Distinctly. Yeah. It's like, it's like, you know, drug laws. If you are caught with, you know, possession with intent to sell, it's something different from, you know, simply possessing drugs, Indeed. but and even that's a whole nother department. Right. Even selling fake drugs is still a crime. Like, right. Yeah. 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 Right. Um, when our listeners are listening to this, I just looked at, so it was back in um, episode 30, 36 is when we- So long ago. I know. And so actually it was um, <laughs> around, the, I think about when our listeners will be hearing this, it'll be a year ago. Okay. So mm -hmm. this was really a that year ago right. that, that we first um, got to know a little bit about what your work is and some of the things that that came forward in your work and then work mm -hmm. like yours uh, mm -hmm. was just completely mind blowing. Like mm -hmm. just to, to think about, um, about what sorts of things are um, sold, what sorts of things are purchased. Oh, and we talked about that, that vice article about that one awful well, guy. Well, mm -hmm. can, that's another question, Anna. <laughs> okay. Sorry. <laughs> sorry. I got excited. <laughs> but um, even in like when you were talking about this gallery that um, there were the there are um, skeletal remains with the dirt still on them and with like corroded jewelry still on them. Come like on. I found that um, that was very um it's upsetting and harrowing and and just as a little bit more context for you um our listeners know um that we have rather strong views about um remaining mindful of the fact that archaeological remains are human beings mm -hmm. and that there is and so when we are doing show notes we include wherever we can comments about whether you will be looking at human remains in these messages sure. and just to kind of continue in that that vein of respecting the fact that there was a person involved in this that did not give their consent to participate mm -hmm. in any of this mm -hmm. um right. and um i'm not we're not here to decide when somebody stops being a person and somebody's like values stop mattering um, um, but it's something that hearing even having even thinking like this and even like having a project like we have that where we think about this all the time, the difference in how I responded to what you were saying with having those skeletal remains with the dirt on them, mm -hmm. when you said, well, this guy previously had been busted for um, bringing in mummies. And I was yeah. like, well, yeah, of course. Like oh, that's well. like, <laughs> it's something that I find like reprehensible, but it is somehow normalized. Like it's something like... If you, maybe because you've heard about the Victorians well, doing it. Well, yeah, and I've and like been to a museum and like I have. Yeah, yeah. So it's something that there is the sort of 
these are these are the things that you expect if someone were to to do this like of course that's what they do but then like you described something else like later Mm. in that same sentence Mm. that I was just like why would why why um and so I can (laughs) yeah and I can only begin to imagine what you have come across and so Mm. I'm just wondering um is there something that comes to mind that is the most striking or unusual or memorable or upsetting um Mm. object like well artifact I, I don't know or like Unit of or, or a person, yeah, unit, yeah. That, how, do, how do we that you have, quantify that? Yeah, that you've seen for sale or you've seen evidence has been purchased. Mm-hmm. Is there something that, um, just really either because you're like, w- why would you like from just sort of the what to the like, mm-hmm. oh my god, why would you? Yeah, so yeah. we want to hear I mean, your stories. Uh, and you also you raise a great point, like just the very fact that we have to both as you know interested readers, as listeners, as researchers, think about, you know, the doing of the research makes us have to think about those who would take parts of the dead or the whole body or, you know, many other manifestations and turn it by the selling and buying act into things, to come things that are commodified, which gets to the heart of that issue. But yeah, I mean, that, that's a real kettle of fish question. Right. <laughs> like, so far, by now, it's almost become the case of, and I'm not exaggerating, if you can imagine it existing within the world of human remains of various ages or conditions or contexts, I'm, I don't think I'm exaggerating when I say I've probably seen an example uh. of selling it or alleging they have an authentic example of it or expressing desire for it. Um, and that runs the gamut from circa 1800s Dioc quote unquote trophy skulls with clear signs of trauma, mm. like oh, no. to mummy parts, feet, hands, to what we think might have been the face of a bog body. Uh, oh, the face. the face. Just the face, huh? Can you imagine? Just, yep. Yeah. Yep. Very well. Yes. You, but yes. <laughs> uh, to alleged, you know, World War One and World War Two victims. Oh, that's okay. all. A couple of days ago, someone selling um, or posting as you know on their profile in a Facebook group an example of they, you know, many angles of a skull with fractures with bu- a clear bullet wound through it. Uh, and there's these, oh, you know, look at these pictures of here's this blood force trauma, here's this, there's that. Oh, I didn't know what I had entirely, the guy wrote on the comments, until I tried to show the skull into a separate public forensic anthropology-themed group, and mm-hmm. some suggested it was probably someone who was in a, a, a world war or had injuries that would fit the type of fighting that you would see right. from a, you know, in that era. And then I took it out of the group when some started to get offended that it was in private hands. So now I've put it mm. into this buying and selling group to show off to you guys to take a look. Uh, not for sale, but, you know, message me if you want to talk. You see that all the time. Uh, yeah, you know, I've seen bones fresh out of coffins, 
I, I've used in a presentation several times, an example of a clip on YouTube that we found a few years ago that's still up. We reported it straight away. It has been taken down. <laughs> cool, cool, cool. Uh, somewhere in India, we think East India, Nagaland, that area, Bangladesh. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you know, a young, young guy, maybe in his early twenties. Hard to say. You don't see his face much. Um, his friend is on the ground surface filming. He is in a burial cut. It looks to be a probably a pretty modern burial because you can see like scraps of what looks to be pretty modern clothes and jerseys, but the skeleton is very dirty. And he's just there pulling out the bones, and he pulls up the skull, and it's you know has soil and staining, and bits of hair still. And you put on the surface, the friend can film it, and they're talking about it, and that's there on YouTube. Um, bones with every kind of pathology you can imagine, trauma. It, it goes on and on. It's and it doesn't get any prettier, to be honest. Right. It's, uh, and that part to mention the uh, separate collecting community of those who seek "quote unquote" wet specimens. Oh, nope. Yep, oh. yep, yep. That so is vivid. That, there, that but, is a vivid descriptor. Yeah, there's that market too, all over social media, etc. So yeah, that's a little taste. Um, I apologize to your listeners, but no, I mean it's really interesting. It's just a real bummer. Yeah, it is. It's and there's still, you know, plenty of times almost every other day, and I'm just doing my rounds and checking the usual channels, and I still frequently find examples of that make me say, "Wow, like you can buy that? Why do you want to buy that? You know, (laughs) how the hell would you ever desire that?" It's right, right. It's it's never stopped being a source of both personal revulsion. I feel the emotions, but then you also have to take a step back as a researcher and try and treat it neutrally as a thing, as a pattern, as an action of human behavior, but it still can be stomach turning. Yeah. Yeah. So you said you were, you were doing your, your digital rounds. Um, what does a typical, I mean, if you don't mind yeah. uh, telling us a few trade secrets, but what what does a typical kind of search look like for you? And because you mentioned that you are interested in using big data to help you find unethical dealers, yeah. um, and so how how do you do that? Yeah, because I'm imagining you're just like scrolling through Instagram that you like are like hashtag something, and you're just scrolling mm-hmm. through, mm-hmm. and like because I have no concept of. <laughs> what this looks like like what what do you actually use i'm imagining a scene from you know a procedural crime drama where you have about 18 oh, screens in front of you and maybe some holograms we've got we've got Polly oh, Perrette like yeah. with her multiple <laughs> monitors <laughs> montage she has much better hair than me so i yeah, think well, <laughs> you're not <laughs> alone in that camp <laughs> uh, no i mean that's a great question like i guess I'll approach it like this. So, like I said before, you know, and as other researchers have mentioned, when you think about big data and the internet's effect on trafficking overall, and you know, what e- has e-commerce done, and especially then the ballooning of it and the special kind of environments that social media creates, as I mentioned before, you have that unleashing the shackles of the sale room, sales room phenomenon. Um, yeah, so that has 
by the very nature of where much of this activity is moved to, that's what's moved into the realm of big data in its own way, but not in the normal sense necessarily that's like big data scientists would think of most concepts of big data really. In my opinion, when we think of big data as applied to trafficking research, we're mostly talking about all the metadata that is generated right every time. Oh, okay. Right, like, yeah, every time a seller posts an advertisement that remains for sale or a dealer posts an image of something in their collection to whet appetites, it's not just the image itself. Uh, so, okay, in terms of getting the data, like you mentioned, there's manual methods, there's a variety of scraping programs. If, if the platform in question allows it, or has it modified its, its what they call API to mm-hmm. prevent it, which is always another question. Oh. A lot of it is still done manually, or like you said, you know, you follow hashtags, you follow handles. There are technical ways. There's the the, the, there's the high tech high tech world, but uh, and again, it also all depends on how big of a market you have across how many different groups on social media and how many different platforms. So far, at least, the human remains trade world is not nearly approaching the size of something that my colleagues are doing. You look at Near Eastern antiquities trafficking on social media. That's exponentially bigger. So they have much bigger data to work with. But for our approach, and given the nature of the the global, the finite, the kind of dispersed community that we have of the bone collectors, right? It's the image itself, not and the comments and the text, of course. But you can quantitatively or qualitatively look at, you know patterns of the number of likes, of retweets, of, and again, like you said, how hashtags are used. Are they used mm. on Instagram just as individual terms? Are they used as deliberate misspellings to indicate certain things? Uh, of course, and that says nothing about across languages, but even within English, you know, is it a code word or is it an accidental misspelling or is it something more deliberate to signify something else? And are the hashtags using combination, what they call hashtag stuffing? Right. Um, and then most recently, what Sean and I have been doing is more on the image side of things. Like there are programs you can use to really dive into how an image is analyzed and composed. Is it what colors is it uh, like is more prominent? Can you take enough screenshots with a big enough data set? and then run these programs that can detect evidence of use of filters and alterations. And Oh, can you figure out like a signature uh, of an individual photographer maybe? That, yeah. That's what that's for. That's more for like identifying perpetrators, not like, I don't know. Like, cause no, I was just like really should just... people, are people more likely to buy something with like a Valencia filter? Like, is it, <laughs> like I'm just trying to like understand. I'm a fan why, of crema. You're right. But, Yes, in a way, because it all goes into the realm of like silent ways or what do you call non obvious ways that collectors or dealers communicate to each other or show they have something available for sale. When hashtags that mention explicitly for sale are used, do the images look like how do the images look like? Is it the skull in the foreground? Is there anything in the background? 
you know, how is lighting used? Is it on a shelf? Is it not? Is it like, we want to get at what we call the rhetoric of the bone trade, which is how our, our the grant that we have from the Canadian government that led to the bone trade project. That's how, that was the seed that allowed this phase of our research to go on. That's, it's not just that we see evidence that people are buying and selling the dead online, but you know, how, to what extent, how are they visually and textually communicating in ways that the algorithms of these platforms that are allegedly supposed to track this stuff, yeah, if they were ever allowed to actually do their job and if the companies cared, which is another kettle of fish. Right. But the dealers in all these type of material can easily get around this stuff. You can trick the algorithms, but we want to know how is that done. It's like it gets into the realm of even like forensic image manipulation. Yeah. And it's all a way that you can look, kind of backtrack and try and find out, you know, some of the secrets of how this community operates. There is no perfect crime. Exactly. That they don't really want to advertise. And that's, that's how we use big data. That's the type of data that we use, right? Yeah. So listeners don't treat this as a how-to episode for setting up your own boat shop. Trust me, it's a lot more complicated and risky and problematic. And there are always people watching. So good. Um, so <laughs> I have a bit of a follow-on question for that. So, so you just like really like beautifully laid out the sort of ways that you're almost like developing kind of typologies of of these um, of sellers or owners or owners who could be sellers and mm, sort of the um, this intentional dubiousness and the and these mm. things that are um, subtle nods to to one another. Um, is it, and you've also alluded to or made direct reference to um, the kind of limitations of of prosecution on this or even mm-hmm. like, or whether there like isn't a law about it or the law isn't enforced or it's easy to get around. Um, is this, uh, are, is all of this brought, like it, it has all of this developed out of well, I don't know necessity? Does there have to be such uh, like subterfuge and like like shadiness about this, or is it stemming from an already sort of existing career in illicit Shady trafficking? Mm. Yeah, and so it's just this is just another, or is this sort of um, putting something in place so that if and when there are actual like like very strict readily enforceable laws about these things they already have that infrastructure in place good question actually um even if we knew the full extent of the bone trade everywhere across all countries all platforms at any one time i don't think it's i don't feel it's ever going to approach the scale of the other more famous types of trafficking even within antiquities itself so it's you don't get as much networks and crazy interconnections and groups with thousands and thousands of members as you will in other categories ebay used to have uh, the bulk of some of the more upfront obvious markets from probably late 90s all the way through 2016 when finally ebay after pressure and public exposure and media exposure and that forensic anthropologist 2000 2003 paper Mm -hmm. calling them out Finally, in 2016, they developed 
algorithms that work generally well enough to actually enforce a ban they put on for almost all human remains material, except modern hair and modern teeth. People still try and sneak onto eBay to use it, uh, but that's another story entirely. Right. So that kicked so much of the traffic to these other platforms like Facebook and Instagram, and probably to Twitter. I've seen some on Reddit, um, of course, WhatsApp. There's now these other messaging tools that right. allow quick on and off flash sales, if you will. The main players love Facebook within Facebook and Instagram and Facebook. The big thing that I and others have said is that when people have asked, oh, isn't it all on the dark net? And why don't you have to go way to the depths of the bowel? Because <laughs> these platforms and the way the way they were designed has made them so easy to co-opt right. by communities wanting to do illicit activities. In most cases, you do not need to hide it that well. So like to back to your question, these patterns, these signals we're seeing to me are not really out of caution because with the exception of since 2017, when some of my and Sean's work actually started to uh, get out into the media and we publish open access anyway, because we believe in that. Right. But then a few of like a couple of papers of ours, one especially was picked up and dropped into by admins and you know, a couple of these groups, which caused a bit of a freak out, but, <laughs> but they're still there. They're still using it. Instagram, like, you know, the prevalence of dealers on that site has kind of gone a little bit in waves recently, but they know that the enforcement is basically nothing like they know it's an open field. So I think that oh, what I, you know, the, the pattern we're seeing, the rhetoric they're developing is to communicate sort of out of caution, but not, not caution born of what they feel is necessity, I don't think. Okay. Because a lot of the deals are made in private direct messaging, but they can signify to each other that it's more like, if you know what to look for, you know that this dealer who wants to specialize in this material will have a lot more than they have on their profile. Okay. And then if you yeah. please come and talk to him or her and you can get the lowdown of the full extent of what they might have coming up or what they could be bartered with for trades, for example, it's, yeah, it's, Maybe it's a little bit about exclusivity too, yeah, like you're in a private true. club now. I mean, in in our 2017 paper, which again, if you're listening or interested, it's on our Bone Trade Project website or mm -hmm. in Internet Archaeology, it's the Insta Dead. Yeah, was we, that was one of the items that we used as a as a reference uh, when we did the script for our last episode. Okay. Uh, and yeah. and we sh that's in the show notes for episode 36. Uh -huh. okay. So we very much appreciate your commitment to open source publishing no uh, because we have a lot of listeners who are not academics and who don't have <laughs> or who are academics that just happen to not have access to like institutional memberships sure. and like subscriptions. Sure. So, yeah. Hey, fans of archaeology, head over to arcpodnet.com slash shop and click the link to our Tee Public store. 
You'll find some awesome designs that you can pick up on t-shirts, mugs, and more. From our Ask an Archaeologist series to the worst idea the Life in Ruins podcast ever had, slamming agriculture. I mean, seriously. Again, that's www.arcpodnet.com forward slash shop for some Archeo swag. Chris Webster here to tell you about one of our affiliates, Timeular. That's T-I-M-E-U-L-A-R. Whether you work from home or can go to the office or even to the field, Timeular is an app, and if you want it, a physical device that helps you track your time down to the minute. Have a hard time separating your work-life balance? Set a weekly goal for tracked work hours and stop when you hit that goal. It's right in the app. So support the APN and finally start accurately tracking your time by heading to arcpodnet.com forward slash timeular. That's arcpodnet.com forward slash timeular to get on track today. Hey, archaeology fans, Chris Webster here. That last ad and this one were just heard by over 4,000 fans of archaeology and history. Do you have something you'd like to sell them? From job postings to products and services, podcast advertising works. Through our unique hosting service, we can play your ad for a short window of time so your customers aren't hearing something that's old two years from now. We can also make your advertising budget go further because we charge by the download, not by the episode. So if you want 10,000 people to hear your ad, that's what you're going to get. Our system allows us to target countries and zip codes so you get exactly the audience you desire. If you'd like to hear more, contact our advertising manager, Madison, at advertising at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. She's super cool and waiting for your call with a media kit and some sweet, sweet metrics. So that's Madison at advertising at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Remember, podcast advertising works because you're listening to this literally right now. And thanks for not skipping. Anna referenced a, a guy in a Vice article. Mm-hmm. Um, and so um, in that last episode where we talked about this, there was a Vice feature that covered an American guy mm-hmm. named Ryan Cohn, mm-hmm. who has this, his apartment is just full of pieces <sighs> of humans. And, mm-hmm. and so they have this photo of this, like, unfortunately, like, good looking person like and like, let me show you my etchings. yeah like a very yeah like yeah. sexy goth but, thing yeah, but like yeah. why but why? why do you think people are interested in owning parts of other people and so Damien, like, why? so my my last question my sort of yeah. like like why why are they doing this is this also sort of this the sense of like flouting taboo right or like, is this something that mm-hmm. is you certainly have your own work cut out for you. And like, but like, have you had um, conversations patterns? and have you had conversations with other researchers who might be looking at like almost like the, the psychology or the sociology mm-hmm. of people that want to own bits of other people. Mm-hmm. You talked about this at the top of our conversation with sort of the, um, the correlation between yeah. uh, these traffickings and people who, um, live in places with um, imperial and colonial past. Mm-hmm. And I would go so far mm-hmm. as to say there is a connection between those things. Um, right. <laughs> but, but why do people want to own people? Why? Well, own dead people. Like that, <laughs> why is that? Why? Yeah. How's that a thing? <laughs> it's, it's, it's a very complicated question. Instead, it's the topic of, it could be the topic of plenty you know, of research theses and et cetera. And 
across you know, certain social sciences. But and yeah, you know, I do often chat about this with colleagues studying other collect types of collecting communities because uh, again, you see a lot of overlap in you know what's known about the reasonings and the motives of collectors. But then of course, it's not entirely overlap because in my case, they're dealing with the collecting of the dead themselves, which is always going to be different logistically, different emotionally, different psychologically than Ushaptis or bits of papyrus, for example. Right. right. So, right. I, I think it's, yes, it comes down to, in many ways, both it's this rehashing of these colonial ideals uh, that, you know, it is a status symbol to show that you have the money and connections and time to collect, you know, the exotic other, basically. Mm. But yeah, it's something that you don't think of as a person right. necessarily. You commodify it into it goes from person to part of person, you know, stripped of any kind of agency or identity to thing to buy and sell, and that makes it all right. Yeah. But as I've seen plenty of examples of uh, people showing off on social media, there are individuals like you said with uh, the gentleman you mentioned uh, and many others who have been collecting the dead for so long, they have you know, whole walls of their apartments or house set up as huge modern-day wonder cover. Yeah. Cabinets of it doesn't office. seem very welcoming. No. Like, if I were to walk into that room, I would be like, eh, goodbye. Right. But, but see, you would never probably be invited. That's true. So I have a feeling party. I would be invited. I have a yeah. feeling that this is like a tender date could end up with me being like, oh, no. Right. <laughs> <laughs> no. If there's a tender date of yours, you just run the other way. You know? Yes. <laughs> but you see over and over again, like what we've noticed is quite different, I think. At least as we've observed it to dates and by some of these channels, the bone collecting community is different compared to papyrus or freshly murdered antiquities of any type, for example. Yeah. Yeah. This was never a community, I don't think, that was born out of or designed to attract the Uber rich. Oh. You see plenty of examples in dialogue, in photos, of people talking all the time about their they do it because they love the dead. The the good ones do it because you know, we love the dead. We, we, we want to respect, we respect the dead. We would never collect anything unethical. I mean, it's cognitive dissonance to me, but. but like, do but, they think, do they think that they what? are like, like <laughs> Neolithic, like Neolithic people at Chateau Hoyak, like putting their like ancestors, like in the, under in their the floorboards? Floor? Like, is it, do they think that they are sort of the, the sort of spiritual descendant like descendants of, of the people who are like honoring the dead by being with them? Keeping them around? No, only in the most abstract sense. Ah, okay. In most cases, it's very Yeah, you tried, Amber. Good job. They're not collecting their own dead. They're collect usually collecting other cultures. Very much the dead of other cultures or times or places. Yeah. Anyways, right. Okay. You see, the one thing you see in common across a lot of collecting communities, including the dead, amongst some collectors at least, is the collectors like mythos, the collectors as heroic saviors, if you will. Mm. In common dialogue from Oshoptis to Orchids to Papyrus to the Western collecting community who is around the world, connects by social media and other means. We want to collect this material because we think it is something under threat, whether it is or not, or we think, you know, the people who are its descendants, real descendants in the home countries, 
can't take care of it. That's more common for antiquities. In our case, it's a lot of dialogue of, well, you know, we can find the osteology textbooks and the articles and, you know, us collectors, we can study human remains just as well as professional academics. Those academic nerds, like, how dare they, you know, build careers from the excavation and museum or laboratory-based study of properly curated remains. We can collect the dead ourselves and do the same thing, and we'll we'll know as much as they will. So is it is it like a perversion of the concept of of fighting back against gatekeeping? Like do they yeah. feel that, yeah. that oh, professionals yeah. are being elitist? Yes, very by, much with it by their ethics and their their training? Very much so. Oh wow. But you see that. But then the other side of it is, like I said, plenty of examples of you know, I have a small collection, you know, I'm just a minor player, I have a few skulls. I love death, I respect the dead, but I want to sell this because I really need to pay my bills. Mm. Literally, like, mm-hmm. you see that kind of thing where it's, this is a community that operates on a variety of different socioeconomic classes, I think, as opposed to the usual antiquity collecting community, which is, for the longest time, especially before the internet, but even still has tended to hit the upper echelon of society more who can afford the often very, very expensive prices that authentic looted items, well, authentic items, many of which would be, could be freshly looted, say out of the Middle East, can fetch on the market hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of dollars. You rarely see those prices, whether it's social media-based or gallery-based, you don't see that that often at all on the Bodre collecting community. It's a different, it's a different sphere. On to crime mm-hmm. uh, and crime fighting. Continuing with crime. <laughs> well, yeah, continuing with crime and, and moving on to uh, your superhero identity. <laughs> um, can you tell us a little bit about the Alliance to Counter Crime Online, ACCO? How did it start and how did you get involved? Uh, well, we started in late 2018. Um our executive directors, who were originally and are still founders of an organization, an umbrella organization called SINDOC, which is the Center for Illicit Networks and Transnational Organized Crime. Um, mm-hmm. They basically just come out because they reached out to experts in a variety of trafficking research specializations, not just in academia like Sean and I, but in the policy world and in NGOs and beyond. And just by email and by conversation, we all just kind of agreed we need to form an alliance to better take on the common battle that we all saw and shared, which is the ease with which e-commerce and social media can be used for illicit activity, the lack of oversights, and the need to reform legislation. And then also, if our listeners wanted to get it, if our listeners have expertise in in any of the relevant um, or maybe arenas or if they want to learn more or if they if there's a way to support the work yep. that that you're doing um how might how might they be able to do that sure thing um yeah we do that in a variety of ways through through research through advocacy through you know we we are also on social media even on facebook and instagram and on twitter at countering crime for example through we have a lobbying arm we have a variety of tactics if you will um 
research, but also working to connect that research to policy, if you will. Mm -hmm. uh, but so to, for the public, if the best way to get involved is really by visiting our website, which is counteringcrime.org. That's one word, countering crime. Or we're on Twitter, at countering crime. Uh, you can keep up with our work. And on the website, you can see our various petitions that we often run. Um, these will go to select relevant members of, US, of the current U.S. Congress and the relevant committees that deal with you know, technology, uh, e-commerce, et cetera, uh, in which we are trying to actively show that the public sees and cares about the work that we're doing and also has an interest in reforming the laws that govern tech. Uh, and then, of course, then on that same tech, you can also like us, follow us, the more that the public you know, <laughs> boosts us on the same tech that we've been talking about, uh, it also helps the group as a whole in our work get traction. So, so if, if you could, um, you know, imagine an ideal world where the right types of legislation are starting to be put in place to protect remains of, you know, human remains wherever and, and from whenever, um, what would that kind of, what would that look like? Sure. Um, I'll give you the general answer because I think Thank you. <laughs> anything any of our members have been tracking from sex trafficking to wildlife to antiquities, remains, drugs, etc. Um, so collectively, we believe that ideal legislation fundamentally will make it illegal to host criminal activity online, full stop. So that tech platforms, basically, they must become responsible for removing criminal content from said platforms. Uh, yes, this laws then, by legal efforts, will make tech platforms less profitable but that's why these platforms are fighting it. So yeah. if you can see, we want this legislation to strip their ability to fight it, which will also, in its own right, make the internet safer for all of us who use it. If it's illegal offline, it should be illegal online, is yeah. the yeah. general motto that we're using here. Very, very and some areas are gray areas, of course, but we're not talking about the, the antiquities trade, the human remains trade, even the human remains trade, some will say to us, why do you really care about that? That's a victimless crime, which, of course, I think we're sure all, that's not the case in the slightest. But, <laughs> but then they point to things like sex trafficking or drugs, where the public can obviously see front and center a victim, the user yeah. or the trafficked person. Mm -hmm. So we're saying, well, laws that can address all of this collectively with out wiggle room or loopholes is the is the goal you have chosen yourself a project <laughs> yes it is a project for sure yeah but we are committed to fighting it so yeah yeah it's oh it's very admirable thank you thank you for you're welcome, you're welcome. bringing bringing us on thank this, you for this the training. work that you do yeah well thank you for your work thank sure. you for your time but uh -huh. our last two <laughs> questions are um questions that we ask all of our um interview guests and so it's really fun to see um how people who do anthropology uh, how they can have such widely uh, varying answers mm -hmm. so yeah. this is so this these are these are more fun. These are than, well. I mean, if, if you want to have an answer that isn't fun, that's fine too. Oh yeah, oh, sure. Yep. No pressure to be fun. Uh, so, to you, what is the best thing about anthropology? 
Well, I mean, yeah, look, anthropology as a whole, I would say, what's always attracted me to it, and I, as I've learned more about it as I've gone on, it's so flexible. All the different areas that hide, not just within each of the four, you know, U.S.-based subfields, but as a concept of the study of humanity as a whole, like, I always like the new ways that its ideas and principles and its worldview, what it teaches us as anthropologists, even archaeological anthropologists, how we can use these to address issues like what we've been talking about that some of the discipline's founders would never, ever have conceived of even. And yet, it's a constantly malleable tool that can be, by its very flexibility, so increasingly relevant for modern times, I think. When it has dialogue with the other social sciences and humanities, and it's such a good field for interdisciplinary interdisciplinarity anyway. Um, and then, yeah, in archaeology as well, um, you know, uh, osteoarchaeologists is an archaeological science and in that same way that we're not limited to one thing in our bag of tricks, but to, what I what attracts me the most is the challenge of bringing that together, like to bring all the details that we can out of a skeleton, for example, or in, in our case, take osteology, combining with digital humanities, combining with technological programming and like computer science, for example, to put it all together to then try to tackle this issue of trafficking online that neither of those disciplines by themselves would really think, oh, this is something I can be used for. Um, and then our final question, if you could have been present for one particular moment or discovery in either history or anthropology or archaeology, what would that be? Yeah, well, I mean, I don't know about you guys, but I mean, beyond perhaps the wish of all of us who have spent more than one or more seasons on an excavation uh, at a site that became near or dear to them, of course, we might all have the desire to go back and see a day in the life of that community. Like in graduate school, I worked on this 3,800-year-old 3, 3, uh, cemetery village site called Mam Bok in northern Vietnam and for two seasons, and then did some laboratory-based analysis of an older site. And, you know, I would still love to go back and plunk myself into the middle of that little community at some point in its life over its 200 years of existence and just meet the people, see them, like observe a funeral, see such things. Like I think a lot of us yearn for that. Yeah. On the oh, absolutely. Version, if you will. Like, I have so many questions and I would just like to go back and okay. just I, yell, yeah. what were you doing? Like, I want to meet the person whose little sticker is on the like pot of my lush body wash. <laughs> and like, so like, that's you know set, that's like set manageable goals. Right, but I mean like <laughs> I like I want so much to meet that person, much less the person that like created the ceramic materials that Indeed. I studied Indeed. in grad school. Indeed. Like, and I guess the last thing I'll say is, um, I mean, in a, in a general sense, I'd also be interested in like being present when, for example, Angkor Wat or Machu Picchu were quote unquote rediscovered in like the 1800s, 1900s, but in the sense of being first revealed to the wider world, which is not to discount, of course, that local communities never really forgot these quote unquote lost right. cities were there. But if you get my drift, like to be a fly on the wall is Hiram Bingham, you know, pushed aside some of the last bits of foliage and oh, wow, this is what wonders are before me kind of thing. It's right. Does that make sense? I don't yeah, know. yeah, it really okay. does. Yeah. 
For okay. sure. Thank you so much for, for talking with us and for doing what you do and for sharing that with our listeners. You're welcome. It's my pleasure. Thank yeah. you for having me. Yeah, we got, we had a lot of, um, we had a lot of positive feedback um, and interest in, in that episode when we did it the first time. And so it's just on, on curating human remains. Yeah. yeah. And, and so it was, it's just such an honor to, to bring in the person that was, was really the, yeah. the well, celebrity guest. But yeah, thank uh, you for, I know that you are a few hours ahead of each of us. Um, and so thank you so much for taking time out on your Saturday no, no. night to like, yes, when you probably yes. should be like decompressing from having uh, to do this all the time. Like just, <laughs> all right. Thank you so much. All right. All right. Thank you so Absolutely. much. Absolutely. Have a great night. You Bye. This show is produced by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle in Reno, Nevada at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Chris Webster here. Thanks for listening and sharing this episode across your socials. It really helps us get the word out. If you don't know how to share from your podcast app, just look for a share icon on Apple devices. It's usually a box with a little arrow coming out of it, something like that, and share it across your socials right from in the app. If you'd like to support us a little more and get some extras in the process, then head over to arcpodnet.com slash members for some options. That's arcpodnet.com slash members to support archaeological education and outreach.